Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of B Radio. Uh, tonight, we will be covering the differences between the technocracy movement and the Venus Project. Uh, this is actually brought on by um, actually some accusations on the part of one of the shows I recently debunked, trying to state that we were the same show or the same movement essentially. Um, so we're going to try to clear that up today. Uh, I want to thank everybody in advance, uh, or not advance, but I thank everybody for uh, you know who participated in my Zeitgeist TV day. Uh, we got about 60 viewers at maximum. We were at the top of news um, pretty much all day. Uh, if we wanted to be the top channel overall, that would be great, but it would require more like a thousand people, which is not infeasible. But um, and it would it would definitely get a lot of people wandering in to find out what Zeitgeist was about. So I'm hoping to be able to do that in a later uh, time. Um, once again, as always, B Radio and BTV, Zeitgeist TV, are still accepting donations to keep on the air. You guys kept me on the air last time. I'm hoping that I can get the same results this time. Uh, and the donations can be given through My MySpace, which is available here on Blog Talk Radio. If you click to the My MySpace, it'll bring you there. There will be a chip-in widget on the right. Um, tonight, uh, I'm sure Thunder will eventually be available. Uh, he had suggested that he wanted to be on tonight's show. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, we have two other panelists, um, one of which is uh, returning, the other is a first-timer. Um, so Jackie, uh, introduce yourself. Hey, yeah, this is Wade Slave from New York. How's everybody doing today? <laughs> doing great. And um, on our new... Panelist, I apologize for forgetting your name already. <laughs> Go ahead and introduce yourself. It's all right. Some of you know me by uh, Folly13 on the forums. Uh, my name is Ish. Nice to meet you all. Excellent. Excellent to have you, too. Um, apparently, I was honored enough to find out that Jacques and Roxanne um, actually had listened to my one of my previous shows, uh, debunking that other show about Cap, you know, basically trying to attack the Venus Project. So... Um, in response to this, they sent me an email, and uh, it had some um, information in it to make the differences between technocracy and the Venus Project very obvious. So I'm going to read from this now. Uh, you have to bear with me. The, the format is a little bit you know, difficult to read the way it's set up. But um, first I'm going to read uh, from technocracy, and then I will then obviously then state the differences by the Venus Project. Now, technocracy... Uh, is American and Canadian citizenship required? Uh, Asia, or Asia for the Asiatic. This is when Jacques was a member. Blacks are separate but equal. So essentially, it was a system that encouraged segregation. And a method of distributing resources. Uh, actually, I'm sorry. Let me let me read the opposing. All right. So American and Canadian citizenship required Asia for the Asiatic, uh, as opposed to the Venus Project, which is open to all of the world's people. Um, blacks are separate but equal, uh, whereas in the, for technocracy, whereas in the Venus Project, no separation between races. Um, now, once again, this is when Jacques was a member. Uh, I don't know if that's changed. I can only assume that it has. Uh, now, um, in technocracy, method of distributing resources by energy certificates to control inventory. Uh, the Venus Project has no such certificates required for material access automatic inventory. Uh, the technocracy is decisions are made by members of appointed to uh, members appointed to continental headquarters, um, whereas 
the Venus Project is arriving at decisions based upon the carrying capacity of the Earth, um, geographical location of the Earth, and uh, now, once again, back to technocracy, uh, dictatorial powers are often held by continental headquarters. Um, that's, I guess, part of the decision-making progress. I'm sorry, like I said, this format's a little bit rough, but basically they believe in a, a continent of, you know, decisions are made by members appointed to continental headquarters, and they have a dictatorship-like power uh, held for that continental headquarters, whereas we arrive at decisions based upon the carrying capacity of the Earth, or of e and each geographical locations on the Earth. Um, now, apparently the technocracy has no conceptual design proposals, the Venus Project has many different designs for city systems, transportation, housing, industrial plants, clean sources of energy, cities in the sea, and more. Um, the technocracy movement has no specific methods of the educational process, whereas the Venus Project has, uh, proposes an educational system which is in accordance with the emerging technologies. Um, the technocracy extends from Canada to Colombia, whereas the Venus Project is global in scope, working towards international cooperation. Um, no specific method of international problem solving, this is when Jacques was a member, uh, whereas in the Venus Project, all of Earth's resources will be utilized, the common heritage of all people. Uh, proposes a system of national defense to protect the continental United States. No defense needed, uh, as opposed to the Venus Project, no defense needed in global economy of common heritage of Earth's resources. That's eventually, obviously. Um, few specific methods of eliminating bigotry and prejudice are present in technocracy, whereas opposed to the Venus Project, education is designed to outgrow obsolete social values. Sorry about that. We're going to go back to that. Uh, technocracy says few specific methods of eliminating bigotry and pet prejudice, whereas in the Venus Project, education is designed to outgrow obsolete social values. Um, the technocracy emphasizes patriotism and national loyalty, whereas the Venus Project is planetary management of all resources for the well-being of all Earth's people. Uh, the technocracy states no specific management of the global ocean resources or outer space, whereas the Venus Project, uh, oceans and outer space will be declared the, uh, part of the common heritage of all people. The technocracy has no global energy project, whereas in the Venus Project, specific methods of overcoming scarcity and shortages of resources, including desalinization projects and global energy development for all, the technocracy movement calls for social, economic, and environmental better informed. Uh, at present, there is no evidence that management by technical experts, most scientists, or any are better informed of the management of the environment or social affairs, most serve their existing social systems. The Venus Project advocating towards specific transitional social design. Uh, the technocracy has static presentation of early technocracy literature, um, whereas the Venus Project is in a constant state of innovation and improvement in scope and methods. 
furthermore, um, I guess there is a, they gave me a copy of an email here to, uh, that they had sent to somebody else. And I guess it's written to somebody named Andrew. Uh, we apply the methods of science to society not in the same way technocracy does. Just because one is skilled does not mean that they are qualified to lay out a sustainable social design. They speak of this in technocracy, but we do not see this design in technocracy except a continental hydrology. Technocracy says they apply the methods of science to the social system, but they do not present blueprints as, as what this specifically means, the Venus Project does. We lay out a specific social design based on the carrying capacity of each geographical region. The architecture, transportation, shipping, aircraft, undersea craft, cities in the sea and land, etc., are all our own design for a resource-based economy. Technocracy does not have such a blueprint as far as, we are aware of, as far as we are aware of. We promote a resource economy and they talk of energy certificates. These are very different approaches. We feel that if we intelligently use the Earth's resources, we can create abundance too vast to monitor. Energy certificates would not be needed then. Essentially, these energy tickets sound like money. Um, now, our technical approach and educational approach are far different than technocracies. We have done a tremendous amount of work to show in many different fields just how to design society in a global resource-based economy with total city systems, building methods, transportation, schools, energy values, etc. This is all done to demonstrate exactly how to implement a resource-based economy of abundance. The design aspects are not just an artistic renditions of future architecture, but correlate with a philosophy of social design and a resource-based economy. All of this has nothing to do with technocracy. Now, I apologize again for the format in which I was giving that information, but um, I wanted to ask you guys as the panelists, do you feel that it's pretty clear that te the technocracy movement and the Venus Project are not the same thing? Uh, yeah, I'd say it's pretty clear. Um, it seems like technocracy is still stratified. Yeah, and, uh, it certainly seems like they still have a sense of uh, stratification involved, and the use of certificates is is pretty far off of what the Venus Project perpetuates. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And um, when I talked to Jacques, actually, I wish that it was a bit more clear, because we had that uh, um, show, and unfortunately, the the Justin TV is not a good place to have an interview. It was pretty clear because. I was either getting echoes or they weren't loud enough or any number of other problems that come up. But um, I asked Jacques about technocracy because of that, and he brought up that he used to be a member of technocracy, and he started talking to them about their opinions in regards to um, uh, racial segregation. And he uh, made it pretty clear when he talked about it was, you know, that he had his conversations with them, and they, he gave the name of the individual I have since forgotten, but it was pretty evident that the argument had a lot to do with just the fact that technocracy wanted to um, encourage racial segregation, that it was only interested in the continental U.S., uh, and that it wasn't uh, focused on anything outside of that. So um, that was uh, basically what I had on that subject, and uh, I think you, there certainly uh, cannot be in any way um, a correlation to any system with the Venus Project as far as on a most fundamental level when we're talking about being, you know, racially segregated. That's a move backwards. So anyway, um, that's my experience with that. I wanted to lay that out. Um, 
it only took up 11 minutes of the broadcast so far, but I felt compelled to make sure that people were aware of the fact that despite what you heard on that radio show that I debunked, there are very many significant differences between the Venus Project and um, the technocracy movement. So did either of you have anything further to add before we continue? Well, you, Neil, you know what you get when you put the words technology and aristocracy together, right? <laughs> the old screwed up shit we're already in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we're not going to get to the future by by using the same methods that we use now. Definitely. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I remember Jacques pointed out was when he was in the argument with the guy, as he said that... Um, Basically, you know, the guy said, you know, he asked him, he's like, what's with this, you know, segregation of blacks? And, you know, they went on to say, oh, well, they'll be equal. They'll just be separated. And then he, you know, then he's like, well, what about Asians? And then the guy said, uh, well, the Asian mind cannot comprehend technology. I guess he was referring to, like, the third world. And, you know, Jacques was like, well, maybe they're not educated in some parts, but why couldn't they be? And he, the guy basically made it clear that he felt that genetically that Asians were inferior. That that was the end of Jacques being involved in that whole thing. And the funny thing about it is that um, since then, obviously, some of the greatest technological innovations are being made by people from Japan. Um, some of the countries, you know, China, for example, has got some new technology that's pretty good. Um, and in fact, a lot of our electronics are made in the Asian world. So just another example of people who don't know what they're talking about trying to find correlations with the Venus Project because they need to associate it with something else because they're trying to make it look as though it's evil because it's not them. So now we are going to move on to Chapter 10. Um, who will make the decisions? Throughout history, the societal decision-making process has gone through a number of changes. At one time, primitive tribes and their ruling chieftains and kings decided upon a set of laws, beliefs, and, more de and mores designed to support and defend the ruling olig oligarchy. Whoa. Everything okay over there, Jackie? <laughs> Sorry, I thought I had it muted. That's okay. As primitive cultures joined together, possibly for mutual protection, the chieftains of the various tribes shared some decision-making. But the advent of nations, councils, were appointed to participate in decision-making to prevent any one of the leaders from dominating. The less privileges, or privileged were not included in this process, as the ruling classes imposed greater hardships on their subjects through taxation and other abuses of power, uprisings, intrigue, sabotage, and assassinations by the oppressed people forced changes in the laws of the land. Governing bodies were then appointed to carry out and uphold laws. Although wealth has always bought political office, it was at the beginning of the 19th century that financial interests began in earnest to play the leading role in inappropriate decision-making. Politicians used every means of deception to consolidate their positions, repeating slogans used for centuries such as, quote, a return to family values, or quote, to serve God and country, and other verbal expressions of undefined goals. They talk around every issue without saying anything of substance, placing emphasis on the role of law and order in government and on international agreements. They enact new laws to control behavior, and if these don't work, they resort to force, bike boycotts, and blockades, 
but none of the methods ever none of these methods ever addresses the root cause. Most people believe that to set things right, all we need is to replace incompetent and corrupt officials in government with decent men and women of high moral character. Although we occasionally find politicians of sincere intent, they seldom find usable answers to problems. Human systems fail, obviously, to serve the needs of humanity. This is, the true, this is true across the entire spectrum of human administration, the church, the government, the military, and the banks. In the past, most social designs were unsuccessful for the, majority, for the majority because their designers were unable to transcend the limits of their own environmental conditioning. We tend to bring our past into the present and project it into the future. Today, the laws that govern society are not based on truly comprehensive and scientific studies. They are based on opinions and traditional practices. For example, our approach to dealing with the increase in crime is to build more prisons rather than alter the conditions responsible for socially offensive behavior in the first place. In a recent discussion with criminologists, it was pointed out that in, if our crime rate continues at its current level, more than half of the U.S. population will be imprisoned by the year 2010. The other half may well have to guard them. Rather than depend on a failed system of punishment or incarceration after the damage has been done, a more effective approach to solving our problems would be to shift our attention to the scourges of poverty, malnutrition, poor role models, violence in the media, and stresses in family life. We need to make an effort to teach people how to resolve conflict without the use of physical force. The discovery of scientific principles enables us to validate and test many proposals. If someone claims that a particular structural element can support a specific number of pounds per square inch, the claim can be tested and either substantiated or negated based upon the test results. It is precisely this processing of testing, I'm sorry, this process of testing, which enables us to design and construct bridges, buildings, ships, aircraft, and other mechanical wonders. In the new social design outlined in this book, scientific and analytical principles can be applied not only to industry and construction, but also to the personal and human components of society. This may lead to the allocation and application of more scientific resources to the study of human behavior. The most difficult aspect of redesigning a culture is that the approach seems undemocratic. By what authority does any group affect a new arrangement of social affairs on those living in the current arrangement? This brings up three questions of primary importance to the redesign of a culture. For whom is the culture designed? What ends are to be served? Who will benefit, everyone or a few? Throughout history, social affairs have either been prearranged or have eventually worked out to benefit a power elite and money interests. Even in so-called democracies, this has been the case. People fear a planned social system may not serve their interests. They perceive a danger that the introduction of any new social arrangement carries with it in the possibility of development of a new elite. If a particular religious group were to design a society, it would quite naturally reflect the group's beliefs, which would be seen as the will of the people. The majority of this group would democratically agree that theirs is a good social design. The atheist, agnostic, Hindu, Muslim, and others not represented would naturally object. That is the need, what is needed is a way to determine the most appropriate direction that will be agreeable to all. As difficult as this may appear, it can be done. Today we have a decentralized system of decision-making, and decision-makers are seldom aware of problems in regions outside their immediate vicinity. 
Those in subtropical Florida have difficulty understanding water rights in Arizona. A burger of Morocco would be challenged if asked to design a health plan that matched the lifestyles of people in Norway. Each of us must participate, and we need verifiable and current information on which to draw up plans. When computers have their electrical sensors extended into all areas of the social complex, we will be able to return to successful centralized decision-making. In a global resource-based economy, decisions would not be based on local politics, but on a holistic problem-solving approach. Earth and the life on it must be seen as, a cons as, as constituting a single system. This centralized whole system could be connected to research labs and universities so that all data is monitored and updated constantly. Most of the te technology to allow such infrastructure management is currently available. For example, when electrical sensors are extended into the agricultural region, computerized systems could manage and control the agricultural requirements by monitoring the water table, insects, pests, plant diseases, soil nutrients, and so forth. Computers and artificial intelligence will be a catalyst for change. They will establish scientific scales of performance. It is doubtful that in the latter part of the 21st century, people will play any significant role in decision-making. Eventually, the installment of AI and machine decision-making will manage all resources and serve the common good. Computers as decision-makers will also scan for new information and methods of conserving resources to accommodate the carrying capacity of each geographical region. This will result in a more humane and meaningful approach for shaping tomorrow's civilization, one not based on the opinions of, or desires of a particular sect or individual. In the event of a regional or national emergency, special information and already developed plans for known types of catastrophes would be available, just as military contingency plans are today. Decisions would be made on the basis of a comprehensive resource survey and the availability of energy or existing technology as opposed to the advantage to be gained by any nation or select group of people. This resource survey would determine the carrying capacity of each geographical region of the global environment. That's actually a short chapter. All right, Jackie, hit us up. What did you think of that chapter? What did I think of the chapter? Um, you know, I kept thinking about that one thing you said about uh, crime and uh, half the population ended up in prison and the other half uh, housing them, which is, you know, almost pathetic in its uh, statement there. Um, and I think that's, you know, almost like the goal you know, just get as many poor people, you know, in prison. I mean, they're not already slaves enough. And, uh, you know, just start an industry around it. I mean, it's almost like the whole world, basically. Slaves to industry. That's, uh, yeah, that's got pretty much my comment on that one. All right. To our other panelists, go ahead. Well, I think it, I think something that was mentioned in that chapter is, is one of the most damaging uh, mindsets that exists today, and it's the uh, the, the concept that um, that uh, social and, and human behavior is something that's that's like unbridled to the point where it really has no cause. It just is that way. Like most people, when you bring up these topics, they'll, they'll just say, "Well, that's the way it is." Well, there's there's more to it. I mean, applying the scientific method to our social structure um, proves this. There are causes, those causes need to be addressed and we continue, we continually fail to do so and our social structure continually fails for that reason. 
I definitely – go ahead, Jackie. Sorry. Now, I'd like to make another comment. Um, this is actually something uh, Ismail and I have talked about, um, about computers and the whole idea of computers taking over the world and, you know, how scary that would be. Um, and when you really think about it, all a computer does is you, you know, you come out with an al algorithmic process, you know, you, you put it into the computer, it memorizes just about everything verbatim, and, you know, it uses just, just purely the information and the algorithmic process to just, you know, perform an operation. And that's all, you know, that's all that they're designed for. It has nothing to do, they have no desire, they have no desire for power. I mean, a computer wouldn't even desire, like, its own power source. I mean, it wouldn't even think to do that. And one of the things somebody's saying about, you know, having, you know, this thing having so much power, you know, over human lives, you know, if you were to program a computer to even, you know, say it, like, you know, acts as if it desires power, well, it's just, you know, it's just uh, carrying out an operation. I mean, does it even feel anything? No, of course not. So, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of people through science fiction, the Terminator, Matrix, and things like that, you know, think computer mind, you know, we're anthropomorphizing this, and uh, that they're going to, you know, it's going to be a really evil thing when you're, you're talking about something that's basically doing things, you know, through the information that you give it, and then it comes out with an answer. It just basically processes it, analyzes it the way we design it to, and that's it. That's all it does. Well, you know, another relevant point to that that people tend to forget about, like, because they always want to make these associations, you know, will the machines be monitoring people, you know, is this RFID chips or any of that, even though Mr. Fresco points out repeatedly in the book, and we've already read through some of the chapters where he talks about it, that there really is no purpose for machines um, monitoring people at all other than their needs. Um, you know, essentially, you know, it, you know, are we out of water in this region? You know, are we out of food in this region? Do we need more cars in this region? That's the kind of things that will be monitored, not people. Computers will also not be making decisions about what people do in their lives. They'll only be essentially allocating resources. And this is something actually that came up to me today because that was another thing I wanted to recommend is the, the documentary called Home, um, was that in many cases people seem to think that this is somehow a loss of freedom on their part that, you know, we're going to actually intelligently analyze the world's resources before we allow people to make decisions on what to do with them. And allow is kind of a strong word because we don't really get into making people do anything. It's more of educating people so that they can come to the right conclusion. But um, in any case, though, you know, is that people seem to think that the best way for us to handle the finite resources of the planet is for all of us just to be fighting over it in the, the capitalist rat race. Um, as if that's a safe way to handle things. And once you really look at how, how dangerous the, the, the planet, the situation of the planet really is, how close we are to upsetting the balance of the ecology in a way that cannot be repaired, you know, you really come to a point where you're like, I'm sorry, I'm, I just don't think that we should just be doing this willy-nilly, you know. Uh, it's like saying, well, you know, I have the freedom to shoot myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't really say that's something we need to defend. You know, the other thing that they talk about is when we talk about resources, they say that the only safe way to, to, to distribute resources is all about the, the price mechanism and using money, you know. And when you, when you talk to them about this, actually, I, I ran into this when I was on one of the other chat rooms that had decided to pick up my show yesterday. Uh, they, they were basically kind of at the attitude that, you know, let the strong survive. You know, if you're not fortunate enough to have those 
pieces of paper, well, then you should work on getting those pieces of paper. And if you can't, well, then I guess you were meant to die. Yeah, that's, the, that's the real insidious part of the capitalist attitude is that, you know, um, if you can't figure out how to make a living in that system, well, then you just, I guess you just weren't, you know, fit to live. You know, <laughs> they don't usually spell it out like that, but when you really stick it to them and you ask them to define what they're going to do with their situation, they, they, don't, they don't have any answers other than that. Now, yeah, but also the really scary thing is all the people with the little bits of piece and pieces of the paper really don't contribute to society or make it any better or contribute to technological advancement except through paying for it with other people doing it for them. Right. No, that's yeah, that's very true. And people don't tend to look at that. Uh, they, you know, they think that money is the thing that's going to give people incentive to do what needs to be done to get, you know, make the world go. The problem is, is that the people who have the majority of the money don't have incentive to do anything. They basically get to spend all of their time on leisure for the most part, um, as opposed to the people who are really doing the work at the bottom. You know, that's something that Marx kind of recognized when he was doing his communist thing. Um, he didn't address the solutions to the problem because he didn't have them. This is the reasons we're not communists. But um, it, it is basically the truth that we tend to have a situation in the capitalist system where your effort is giving somebody more, okay, um, is giving somebody more uh, than what you're getting out of it. You know, essentially, you're doing more, you're getting less for it. That's essentially what labor is all about. Now, go ahead. No, well, well, they have incentive. I mean, but the incentive is to get more bits of paper. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's the incentive that they have. And unfortunately, you know, very few people make it rich on their own merits. I mean, maybe there's a few writers, you know, a few inventors out there that have made their fortune, you know, through their um, intelligence and talent. But, you know, these people that, you know, want little bits of paper, I mean, they're making their fortune through exploiting and using other people. Right. Um, in any case, uh, did you have anything further to our other panelists? Um, no. I, I, well, one of my other thoughts, I, I guess I could mention it's, it's pretty relevant is, uh, to what you're reading. It's how, it's how uh, our system currently doesn't allow the proper extensionality of our technology. Um, and we've gotten to the place where we've 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 advanced in so many different areas uh in the techno in the technology field and our social system still <laughs> remains primitive and uh it's it's it seems to me a, a a very damaging imbalance that has occurred and uh we've gotten to the we've really gotten to the breaking point now where either we're gonna either we're gonna allow uh technological advancement to further our social structure or or we're just we're really going down a very very rocky road from this point on yeah I definitely agree with that um, that was a very short uh, <laughs> chapter as these things go we're only a half hour into the show we've already read a chapter and discussed it I guess I'll go ahead and move on um, we're now on to chapter 11 clean sources of energy some will claim that limited resources prevent us from achieving a society of abundance. This simply is not so. We still have more than enough resources to achieve a higher standard of living for everyone. But it's time to move beyond failed programs and frustrations to innovative solutions that could be applied now if we direct our attention to overcoming scarcity. 
We have the capability to intelligently apply humane science and new technology to provide for most human needs and to reclaim and restore the natural environment. Fossil fuels such as oil and coal allowed our civilization to progress to its present state of development. However, these energy sources are limited and non-renewable and one of many environmental dangers. In designing a new civilization, we must harness energy, a major source of material well-being for all nations. This is a double-edged sword. When placed in the hands of private, in private interests and greed, energy can be used for destruction. This current stock of, or the current stock of atomic weapons can destroy the world many times over, but fusion power and other forms of clean energy, when used intelligently with human and environmental concern, could provide all of the nations of the world with clean, unlimited energy sources and standard of living unattainable today. Now, actually, I want to take a brief moment to pause here and point out that um, one of the best things about the movie Home was at the end, they gave actual real-world examples of these power plants that, that he's talking about. And I talked to Roxanne Meadows today, and she pointed out to me, actually, that apparently Iceland is almost completely powered, as in like 90% of their power comes from geothermal energy. They showed a picture of the plant at the end of home, um, like basically like kind of a, a view on it, um, as like flying by of a geothermal plant that is responsible for powering the majority of Iceland. So all those people that are out there saying that geothermal is this big crazy thing that can't be done, it's being done right now. Now that I have that out of my system. Now, <clears throat> much remains to be accomplished in the underdeveloped areas of our planet. Vast and untapped, untapped energy sources remain largely unexplored and untouched. These, these include wind, wave, and tidal, act tidal action, ocean currents, deep ocean pressure and temperature differentials, falling water, geothermal and electrostatic power, hydrogen and natural gas, algae, bacteria, phase transformation, and thermionics. Thermionics. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not even sure if I said that right. Or the conversion of heat into electricity by boiling electrons off a metal, hot metal surface and condensing them on a cooler surface. Additionally, there is untapped potential of Fresnel lenses, inflatable dome versions of which are being developed for use as optical concentrators in solar power systems. Fusion power welds together light atoms such as hydrogen and lithium. Fusion energy is the energy that drives the cosmos and the stars. When we learn how to harness it, the world's energy problems can be solved forever without any detrimental effects or dangerous toxic materials to be disposed of. The only residue would be the clean ash of helium. Oceanographers tell us that the world's oceans, occupying 70.8% of the Earth's surface, possess an endless supply of surging energy called deuterium, a heavy hydrogen atom locked in the seawaters. According to John D. Isaacs and Walter R. Schmidt, the amount of fissionable uranium and thorium in the oceans can support our present level of power production for millions of years. It is highly probable that in the next century, our main source of energy will be thermonuclear fusion or geothermal extraction. Both appear relatively free of the hazards inherent in energy produced by nuclear fission. The transfer of electrical energy will probably be facilitated by improved methods of superconductivity utilizing cryogenics as part of the international power grid. This grid could serve primarily as a, as a supplement or backup to self-generating structures within the cities. 
A key element of the design of cities in the future will be the embedding of all necessary energy creation within the structure of the city itself. We could also utilize solar concentrators as an, in, as an alternative to fossil fuels for the generation of heat. As of this writing, the Argonne National Laboratory and ARDI are developing a production technique for solar cells that will be nearly 70% efficient at a cost one-tenth that of silicone-based cells. There are many other possibilities for developing photovoltaic systems that generate electricity while harnessing the currently untapped radiant heat energy. I'm going to back this up. In open source ecology, they're building their own uh, solar power, solar panels that are really easy to put together, very inexpensive, and they're actually very efficient. Continuing. The world's single most powerful hydroelectric project is now being constructed in the Tsongbo Bend in eastern Tibet, where the river Tsongbo is fed by great glaciers and waterfalls, which descend over 7,000 feet. When the Chinese harness the energy of this dam, it is estimated that the turbines in this power project will produce more than 40 million horsepower. This is equal to the total world production of hydroelectric power today. Another vast untapped energy option is the development of, I am so not going to pronounce this, piezoelectric materials. <laughs> this source could be employed by using laminated systems inside cylinders activated by the rise and fall of tides. A recent development of one of these materials is polyvinylidene wow, fluoride. Five square kilometers can supply electricity for 250,000 people at a cost of one to three cents per kilowatt power, a considerable savings over fossil fuels. If we developed and harnessed only 1% of the geothermal energy available in the crust of the Earth, all our energy problems would be eliminated. Geothermal energy can supply us with more than 500 times the energy contained in all the fossil, oil, and gas resources in the world. Geothermal power plants produce very little sulfur compared to fossil fuels and emit no nitrogen oxide or carbon dioxide. A relatively small area of land is required for the power plant itself. Geothermal power is the most economical and efficient way to heat and cool buildings. Natural heat stored underground in combination with the permafrost zones could generate thermal electric power and utilize this power to cool buildings in warm weather with geothermal heat pumps. Geothermal energy can also be used to grow plants year-round in enclosed areas, as has already been accomplished in Iceland and elsewhere. In this way, fresh vegetables could be cultivated in all seasons. A similar process could be used for fish farming and in other regions where heating and cooling is needed. If we had applied just one-tenth of what we've spent on military equipment to the development of geothermal generators, we could have long ago solved any energy shortages. In a resource-based economy, a comprehensive analysis of the environmental, human, and social impact would be carefully analyzed before construction began on any project. In all endeavors, a major concern would be to protect and restore the environment for the benefit of all living creatures in the community of life. Of course, the purpose of the power projects is to free human beings from unnecessary expenditure of energy and from laborious tasks. Up to the present, social development in our money-oriented society evolved in a haphazard manner and was affected by many interacting variables. This process seriously delayed achieving the advantages inherent in a global cooperative project to develop renewable energy resources rather than exhaust limited resources. We have the means to determine globally the best energy resources available for each geographical location on our planet. 
What is desperately needed in this world of high technology and rapid change is an energy development strategy on a global scale. Developing a global sustainable strategy would call for a joint venture of international planning on a level never before achieved. Eventually, international life arteries could serve all nations economically and efficiently. Only by utilizing the best planetary planning can wasteful consumption be reduced. Only by reducing wasteful consumption can we achieve our end goal, the highest possible standard of living for all of the world's peoples. Let's say that again, for all of the world's peoples. This is one of the significant differences between us and the New World Order. We want everybody to live well. All right, uh, Jackie, what do you have to say about that chapter? Uh, this is my favorite chapter. I mean, this is why I'm here. It's just, you know, it, it's so positive in its message. And, you know, we have the technology. We have the knowledge. We don't have to no, be no. fossil fuel dependent anymore. And, you know, one of the real unfortunate things is that, um, you know, they're going to bleed us dry. You know, before they ever make the switch, you know, at least as far as the United States is concerned, I hope, you know, in Asia and, and these heavily populated countries that they do, um, you know, just do make the switch to cleaner energy right away because if the third world and these, these large populations, you know, use energy, uh, fossil fuel energy specifically the way the United States does, we're going to have real environmental catastrophe on our hands and, you know, I, I really hope that they nip it in the bud, but as far as, you know, our government and our co corporatocracy system that we live under today, they're just going to bleed the American people dry. It's, it's going to, it's not just going to be a paradigm uh, shift, it's, it's going to be a shift of power on the globe because I don't think Americans are going to survive it as fossil fuels get fewer and fewer um, unless, you know, we smarten up real quick. All right. Um now go ahead. The other person who's on our call, who I keep forgetting the name of, that's Ish, right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> um, I love that chapter that, that you just read through uh, because it, it it really broadens the, the perspective on how we're wasting the Earth's resources right now. And uh, and there's, there's so much energy that we have yet to tap into. Um, when people when, when people often say that that this is an impossibility, what we're striving for and what, what the Venus Project, uh, you know, perpetuates and its ideals and all. It's, it's so easily proven that this is something that's attainable. We just, we have to end this, uh, this linear system of, of consumption and, and start utilizing the Earth's resources properly. Um, like Jackie says, it's, this, this system certainly has an end and and this and that end <laughs> does not look good for us all so uh we we really need to um like Jacques fresco says we need to intelligent intelligently manage their resources uh in order to ensure the the continuity of of the human race pretty much well i definitely agree with that um I'm going to have to take a second here with my kids. So, Jackie, if you want to step in and say anything else, that would save my life. <laughs> you leave it to me, huh? Um, no, I just, um, you know, I think that, I really think that regardless of how far we go with the Venus Project and with the Zeitgeist Movement, which I hope we go very, very far, I mean, longevity is really going to be the key of this movement, 
But knowing that the technology is there, you know, knowing that people know how to do this, it's just a matter of, you know, when are they going to have the incentive to implement it? Unfortunately, you know, the incentive is probably going to come, you know, when, you know, almost all is lost. Um, and, and I really hope it doesn't come to that. So that's what we're here to try to prevent, or at least what I'm here to try to prevent. What about you, Ish? Is that Thank you for uh, stepping in there. Um, yeah, that's the benefit, folks. I'm a family man. I sit at home with my kids and uh, take care of them and take care of the Venus Project. Uh, one of the things I wanted to point out about the, the mentioning of the alternative energy sources in this chapter is that, you know, as home proved, it is working. It does work. And uh, people, you know, some countries are figuring it out. That's another thing that home pointed out. Apparently, there's a city in Germany where the whole city is powered by solar panels. Um, they just put, you know, solar panels in every house, and, and it worked. Um, you can buy whole solar panels for your house right now. It's not like it's some super uber dark art, you know, that only certain people have their hands on. It's just it's the reason why this technology is not widely used is because it's not profitable. Why would anybody build a power plant wherein you have so much energy that you can't possibly hope to charge very much for it, okay? You know, as opposed to, well, I don't know, just go ahead and build another coal plant or another oil plant where I can artificially control the scarcity of um, oil and coal through all the same various scams that they do for gasoline um, and, uh, it, you know, use that to keep my price mechanisms high. You know, if geothermal plants were built, if wind power even was just built in the United States, you know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, it, it isn't profitable for them to have a renewable energy source, and it certainly isn't profitable for them to find out, you know, that we are using them or could use them, uh, that the technology is actually available, because then people will start doing it, and that's exactly what some of these off-the-grid people are doing. They're, they're going out and buying solar panels and sticking them on their homes. And, I, you know, the only thing really holding them back is the initial capital to, you know, to make the investment to get off the grid. And after you've spent it, it pays for itself. Um, I also point to the open source ecology movement. Those people are doing really good job, a really good job of um, making themselves self-sufficient and self-sustaining. And that's really the goal. When people say things like the Venus Project is fantasy land, I usually out to them that, yeah, the... the the end stuff that Jacques spends a lot of time on about, you know, like what would happen if the earth was that way, yeah, that might take a while. But the more we switch the consciousness of the earth towards, you know, self-sustainability as opposed to uh, scarcity for the sake of profit, you know, the more people are going to turn, turn and look at it and say, hey, you know, why am I not doing that? Look at that guy over there. He's got a hydroponic farm, a greenhouse. Uh, he's got geothermal set up to heat and cool his home. He's got solar panels on his, you know, on his um, roof, okay? You know, he doesn't pay electric bills. He doesn't pay gas bills. You know, he makes all of his own food, you know, and he, he obviously at that point, I mean, that's the other funny thing about this is that, you know, if you did manage to make yourself totally self-sustaining, your only job really would be to maintain the self-sustaining equipment. That would be it. And then you'd be free to do whatever you want. This is the funny thing about that, actually, that I don't think, you know, when, when people talk about freedom, uh, in the freedom movement, you know, specifically, they call themselves that anyway. The libertarians will tell you, you know, we're getting rid of your freedom of choice, you know, you know in the Venus Project, you guys, you know, aren't really free. And, and I always point out to them that, you know, their system demands that people work, you know, in order to survive. Yeah, and that's, that's the whole point of, you know, you, 
You step, you punch that time clock, you walk into a dictatorship. The whole point behind that drives the capitalist system is you surrendering your freedom for periods of time every day in order to be allowed to survive. To me, that doesn't really sound like freedom. Uh, that sounds like, well, slavery, <laughs> as opposed to creating your situation so that you can be self-sustaining and not have to work for anybody. Okay? So, in any case, um, did any, either of you have any further comments, or are we going to read on? Well, um, I did want to make one comment about being self-sustaining, self-sufficient. Um, although I think it's well and good to try to get, you know, out of the out of the grip of the corporatocracy through, you know, doing off-the-grid housing and stuff like that, um, you know, the real thing is, is what we need is unity on this. I mean, you know, having just individual homes that are off-the-grid isn't really what the Venus Project plan is. It's about having an entire city or an entire community that supports itself through farming, that supports itself through geothermal power, wind power, different types of solar power, that, you know, you might be in that entire community. And, and that's, you know, we need to look at this not as individuals going out and being self-sustaining. We have to think about coming together as a community and building this for ourselves and for our future generations together, united. Definitely. Ish, did you have anything to add? Well, just adding to what you were mentioning uh, on the home video, uh, there's a section. There's a section of the home video. Uh, I forget where the community is. I think it's in Poland. Uh, but there was uh, this gentleman being interviewed, and he's saying that there, um, that they had built this, this uh, solar this solar panel uh, community where they received all their energy off of these solar panels. And he was saying how um, how that's not even uh, a particular particularly good place to harness solar energy but it still works and uh and that that also just reinforce reinforces the idea basically all you guys need to watch home <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, it definitely covered a lot of ground um i mean it's it's definitely a different approach and i guess you know, some people found it kind of depressing in the beginning the only other thing i think will cause argument is the the fact that home mentions global warming um, and there are people lining up on both sides of that debate. I, I personally am just sick of listening to the, the fighting about it. I, I, when I was running for Congress, I told people that I felt that we needed to investigate it further. I wasn't going to go vote on a carbon tax or anything, but uh, the fact is is that I think both sides really have um, you know, a motive, um, and the, the question would be, what is that motive? Um, obviously, businesses don't want a carbon tax because they don't want to have to pay for pollution, um, on the other hand, you know, would they, you know, would there be some government scam involved with uh, that to try to convince people that maybe they should have a carbon tax so that the government can tax you? I, I don't know. Um, and but other than that, uh, the majority of home I think would sit very well with pretty much everybody involved in the Venus Project. And one of the other things that came about was that it really, it really described uh, the symbiont circle that we all live in. Okay and how we are part of this world. We are not just the masters of this world. And it's basically um, one of the, the major points that we tend to forget, you know, and this is another reason why capitalism begins to worry me, is that they're very much about be an individual, don't care about anybody but yourself, 
I mean, I'm, I'm not paraphrasing. That's what I was told when I was being taught this stuff. You know, and if everybody did that, then everything would be fine. And you can't do that forever. I don't really understand exactly what they think the, the solution was going to be. You know, are we going to continue to cultivate these energy systems that are profitable but at the same time are dangerous? You know, is that the solution? That doesn't sound like a solution to me. That doesn't even sound intelligent. But in a profit system, that's what's going to happen. You know, it's like every, turn, every time I turn around, I've yet to find anything beneficial to the profit motive um, I mean, there are sometimes times when it's not necessarily bad, as in it doesn't hurt anything, like, you know, a kid selling lemonade at a lemonade stand isn't hurting anybody. But on the same token, the other side of the coin is that, you know, you end up with, uh, you know, it, it, it gets into everything. Um, I watched the, the Future of Food. I strongly advise that documentary. I show it on BTV from time to time, Zeitgeist TV, um, wherein they showed that Montesanto Company, you know, goes out of its way uh, with the profit motive in mind to uh, do its best to make farmers utterly dependent on its seed, um, including genetic engineering that will eventually cause seeds to die after a single planting, as in they will never, you know, yield another crop. This is something that they're working on for the sake of, you know, eventually, hopefully being able to make it so that you have to come to them to buy all your seeds. The funny thing about this is that this is another example of when science goes bad. It's not science that does it. It's the profit motive applied to science. Is that they, they claim, of course, they claimed that none of their stuff would ever cross-pollinate with anything else, and it was proven to not be the case. Um, they had a, uh, a type of genetically engineered wheat, I believe it was, canola, something like that, that's genetically engineered to be resistant to weed killer so that you could spray it with weed killer, okay? Um, and they claimed that this would not cross-pollinate. Well, we found out that, in fact, it does. And what's even worse about it is Monsanto can sue you if any of their plants have managed to cross-pollinate, as in nothing you've done yourself, okay? <laughs> Monsanto can sue you if there's any, any crops that hold any of their genetics in your field, even if you didn't put it there, even if it came in through the wind, you know, even, if, you know, even if you had nothing to do with it. Now, and then these same people essentially told us that things would not cross-pollinate, and we're finding this same cross-pollination is actually finding its way all over the world. Okay, this is the profit motive at its finest, because now they're trying to get their patent laws to extend to other countries, so that if they find, you know, your seed, in, you know, their, their seed in Africa, they can still sue you for using it, you know, and you can't use it unless, you know, otherwise. Patents are actually an excellent example of personal property being taken out, you know, like out, out to the point of being insane uh, because patents, they're now letting people patent everything, including people's genetics. They patented uh, the genetics of a couple of men who were um, immune to the AIDS virus. Now, when universities are trying to research the AIDS virus, they can't use this genetic in their research or they will get sued. Uh, they found genetics of women who were immune to breast cancer. They did the same thing. They want to own the cure to breast cancer so badly that they're going to prevent anybody else from researching the genes that they themselves own. They own building blocks of life. This is an example of the profit motive taken to its final level. Now, when you see this in the energy system, to kind of get back to the subject of this particular chapter, you see the situation like movies like Who Killed the Electric Car? Um, oil internal combustion engine driven vehicles are far more profitable than an electrical engine will ever be 
So they made sure to sabotage the project that was essentially forced on them when the California government wanted to do something about smog. Okay? That's an example about the profit motive again. We don't need to be doing any of that. You know, and it, the, the best way for us to handle it really is to look into these alternative energies on a small scale. People are always wondering, well, what are we going to do now? How are we going to get from there to now? Okay? You know, basically, I'm sorry, from here to now. You know what I mean. In any case, um, how are we going to get there? Well, we're going to get there through uh, the steps of essentially making our, our personal technology and equipment as self-sustaining as possible. This can already be done. It requires an investment on your part, but after you're finished, it pays for itself. Um, now, when I was talking about symbiont circles, I actually had another point that I wanted to bring up. And this had to do with what, something that came up on a show that I called into that Jacques and Roxanne were on. Somebody was basically going in there and they were asking about money. You know, how can we do things without money? And I pointed out that, well, when you lived with your mom, did, you, did she charge you if you went into your kitchen and made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? He's like, well, no, obviously not. I'm like, well, that's because families are a resource-based economy. Your mother essentially served the purpose of the machine that will eventually do the same thing for us. Its purpose will be to see to it that everybody has everything they need to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. The only time it's going to intervene in any fashion is going to be in the event that somebody, say, wants to eat an entire loaf of bread, in which case it's going to tell them <laughs> that you can't do that. But not because there's going to be a rule, not because we're going to shoot you, know, shoot you in the face if you don't go along with our plan, but because there is not enough resources for you to make another peanut butter and jelly sandwich. This is another one of the reasons why I tell people who think, you know, think that the capitalist system is the means by which to secure your freedom of choice. No matter how much freedom of choice you have, you are still limited by the carrying capacity of the earth, meaning how much resources are there for how many people on the earth. It's that simple. If there's only three gallons of water, there's only three gallons of water. No matter how much you want to have the right to drink it, there's still only three gallons of water. And if you continue to hold the three-gallon jug up to your mouth after it's empty, no matter what personal right you think you have over that water, there's not going to be any water in your mouth after there's none left. This is, the, this is a major point that people need to grasp in order to understand where we're going with this. We're not talking about depriving people of resources. Everybody will have access to resources, but they will be intelligently managed. That's it. And as it is right now, the limitations and resources of the capitalist system does not give everybody access to resources. It gives everybody access to whatever they can afford. So that being said, um, We've got an awful lot of uh, reading done here just because these chapters have been so small. Do either of you have anything further to say before we move on? No, I think you stated it pretty well there, Neil. Thanks. What about you, Ish? No, go ahead. I'm interested in hearing, hearing on. Well, now we're at to another point in the book where there's a lot of Jock's artwork um, and little explanations. Uh, there's a picture here of a submarine. Uh, it says, harnessing the Gulf Stream. These underwater structures convert a portion of the flow of the Gulf Stream through turbines to generate clean electric power. The turbines would have a centrifugal separator and deflectors to prevent harm to marine life. The Bering Strait Dam. A major development in the future could be the construction of a land bridge or tunnel across the Bering Strait. The primary function of this span would be to generate electrical power and house facilities for collecting and processing marine products. Beneath and above the ocean surface would be tunnels to transport passengers and materials. 
Pipelines to conduct fresh water from melting icebergs to other parts of the world may also be incorporated. Not only could this structure provide a physical link between Asia and North America, it could also serve as an avenue for social and cultural exchange. Desalinization plant. This mega machine of transport, if transporting a transparent enclosure used for evaporative condensation, it, would be, it could be placed over canals, some of them containing salt water, and could serve as a desalinization plant to supply clean water for drinking, irrigation, and other needs. This is accomplished by harnessing the power of the sun and will eliminate water shortages throughout the world. Looks kind of like a big greenhouse, um, basically. You put the water in it, it gets the salt out of it. And pictures of my favorite energy plants, geothermal energy plants. In the future, as refinements and conversion technologies increase its feasibility, geothermal energy will take a more prominent role in reducing the threat of global warming. Readily available in many regions throughout the world, this source alone could provide enough clean energy for the next thousand years. Chapter 12, Changing Human Nature. Much of the behavior acceptable today would be socially offensive in a saner or more logical social arrangement, but whatever better values, ideals, and behavior people aspire to cannot be fully realized when there is hunger, unemployment, deprivation, war, and poverty. People deprived of income will often do whatever is necessary to provide, necess to provide necessities of life for themselves and their families. Their values may be exemplary, but their behavior will reflect the reality of the situation. After World War II, for example, even the most respectable German families could be seen fighting over scraps of food and garbage cans to survive. In a scarcity-oriented society, generosity is a rare occurrence. It is not enough to design new cities and make sweeping generalizations about human participation in democratic ideals. We must re-examine our dominant values and how and why they evolved. During the transition to the saner world, there will still be interpersonal conflict, egocentric behavior, and all other problems that plague our present-day monetary society. Therefore, it is essential that we utilize newer methods of evaluation to greatly enhance human behavior. When we examine human behavior in the same manner as any other physical phenomenon, we will better understand the physical factors responsible for shaping our values and behavior. In the natural sciences, all physical phenomena are acted upon by resident forces. For example, a sailboat does not sail of its own accord, rather it is activated by the wind. A telephone pole does not just fall to the ground, it is acted upon by rain, gravity, wind, and a number of other variables. Human behavior in all areas is just as subject to natural laws and the actions of external forces. It is generated by the many interacting variables in one's environment. This applies even to behavior that is socially offensive. It is often influenced either by one's experimental background, nutritional factors in early life, or a number of other interrelated environmental factors. When one sees a dog leading a blind person across the street, we tend to think it is a good dog. But when we see a dog bark at a cyclist, we call it a bad dog. The dog is neither good nor bad. A dog can be trained to be ferocious or to help the blind. Both animals could be of the same breed, even of the same litter. Their behavior is due to the differences in training. To put it another way, imagine an ancient Roman family watching Christians being fed to lions. Someone today might be horrified and believe that the people watching had trouble sleeping that night, but they, are, but they most likely had no trouble sleeping at all. Such bloodshed was the cultural sport of the times. Lion and Christian were looked upon with equal disdain. 
Or imagine a modern-day fighter pilot, trained in warfare and taught a similar disregard for the other's culture and beliefs, losing sleep over shooting down 20 planes and burning several inhabited villages. More likely, he will, be, he will beam as he has presented a medal and adorn his aircraft with symbols of his kills. The pilot reflects the values of his culture just as the Roman family did. What we call our conscience and morality are not determined by an invisible higher self. They are largely determined by geography, the times, and an individual's upbringing. One of the greatest limiting factors in human systems is our ability or inability to grasp the significance of resonant forces and the extent to which what that environment shapes our thinking, values, and or behavior. When we speak of environment, we mean all of the intersect interacting vari variables which are the prime contributors to that mindset. A fundamental consideration in the physical sciences is that one must identify all of the physical factors responsible for certain outcomes. When an automobile acts in an unusual way, most of mechanics can account for the reasons and identify the physical factors causing the condition. When a human being appears in a hospital with an injury, even if he or she is unconscious and unable, unable to identify the cause of the injury, a competent medical staff can usually identify the cause. With certain forms of aberrant behavior, uh, aberrant behavior neurologists, biochemists, and psychiatrists can, to a limited extent, identify some of the conditions responsible for this behavior. Even in everyday life, evidence supports the connectivity of influential events all around us, but we often fail to apply the same methods of evaluation used in the physical sciences to human behavior. In many instances, our collective values are influenced by an existing social structure or subculture within society. For ill or well, social systems generally tend to perpetuate themselves and all of their strengths and shortcomings. In our era of mass communication, the media controllers and established institutions influence the national agenda, which in turn influences much of our behavior, expectations, and values. Whether they realize it or not, most people are constantly manipulated through the media. If you doubt this, check your public TV station for international news broadcasts. Comparing that newscast to your local newscast could easily convince you that the reporting originated from different planets. One must watch with great skepticism. Our most cherished beliefs are influenced by books, motion pictures, television, religions, role models, and the environment we live in. Even notions of good or evil and concepts of morality are part of our cultural heritage and experiences. This method of control does not use physical force and has been so successful that we no longer recognize or feel the manipulation. The dominant values of any social system rarely come from the people. Rather, they represent the views of the dominant control groups such as the church, the military, the banks, the corporations, the power elite, or any combination thereof. These entities determine the public agenda, the courts, taxes, etc., all of which serve their own interests and perpetuate the illusion that society's values are determined from the ground up. Governments suppress or explain away any deviations that may threaten them. The fear of retribution from gods and demons is still effective at controlling ignorant and superstitious populations in both developed and underdeveloped nations. Many actually believe that demons are responsible for antisocial behavior and that they can be cast out by rituals and incantations. Accordingly, they are unable to evaluate the effects that environment and experiences have on their behavior. Many still believe that volcanic eruptions, thunder and lightning, and other cataclysms are manifestations of anger by gods or demons, and that inanimate objects have their own will and act on their own accord. All human beings are subject to the influences of the surrounding environment. 
These influences become so ingrained in our habits, thoughts, feelings, and outlooks that we actually believe what we are told. Learned behavior is part of human nature. Even those who feel they are making their own decisions, despite their cultural indoctrination, have been influenced by their surroundings. This is why we fail to critically examine values and beliefs and still adhere to myths, superstitions, and outdated customs which have little or no benefit for our survival. The control of nations and individuals has not been easy because we have such little understanding about ourselves and the conditions that shape our behavior. People know less about their own behavior than they do about the physical world around them. That is why the dominant systems of man-made laws and the use of threat of force have been frequently used. This technique has been tedious in its application and uncertain in its outcome. Today, most of us perpetuate these conditions that may have served a purpose in earlier times, but have little relevance to today. What is needed is an intense research program to identify specific conditions and how those conditions influence human behavior. Conditions such as environment, nutritional deficiencies, family relationships, violent media saturation, and, to a limited extent, uh, genetic makeup. The reason a science of human behavior has not been more widely developed is that the focus that has been mostly on people and less on identifying the environmental conditions at work on the individual. The idea that our efforts should concentrate on the development of the individual alone is fallacious. You cannot identify the factors responsible for behavior through the study of individuals alone, but rather through a study of the cultures in which individuals are nurtured. The difference between a Native American, a thief, and a banker are not found in their genes, but instead reflect the environment in which they were raised. Many people today use genes as a scapegoat for aberrant behavior when the major influences have been shown to be environmental. Genetic makeup alone cannot fully explain or eliminate or illuminate human behavior. The science of human behavior is a complex algorithm of genes, environmental conditions, food, shelter, family dynamics, education, religious training, personal experiences, and the interpretation and decisions people make about the world and their place in it. Language causes much of our ignorance about natural law. We speak of the sun rising and setting rather than of the earth's rotation. We talk about plants growing as if they grew of their own accord and ignore the relationship of growth to water, soil conditions, and sunlight. When we use terms like that rock is rolling downhill, it implies that the rock has free will. Nothing we have ever observed in the physical world is self-activating. All the processes in nature are interactive. A stone does not simply roll down an inclined plane and rivers do not simply flow. Gravity acts upon them. All living and non-living systems are acted upon by resonant forces. In like manner, the same laws that govern nature apply to human beings and are prime factors in shaping values. All human beings are immersed with an already established system of values. It is the major and minor differences within that environment and to a lesser extent the genetic attributes of the person that are responsible for the uniqueness of the individual. If the conditions that established those values remain unaltered, in spite of the urgings of priests, politicians, or poets, the values will persist. Perhaps in the future, in a saner culture, people will view our notions of criminal behavior as naive. In its most basic definition, crime is the taking of something from another without their consent. As Mark Twain once explained, there is probably not an acre of land on earth that belongs to its rightful owner. 
Our ancestors stole the land from older peoples who took it from others. In that sense, we are all criminals, or at least have benefited from a criminal behavior. Most man-laid laws in our present culture attempt to control behavior and values so as to serve vested interests. If we want to reduce the crime rate, we must alter the environmental factors responsible for it. And we have to be clear about the, about the behavior. Criminal behavior, like beauty, is often in the eye of the beholder. In some instances, crime comes about when people have insufficient purchasing power, do not identify with the direction of society, or have little knowledge of the consequences of their actions to themselves or to the environment. In regions of low population density with an abundance of food and water, there is no need to steal and consequently no law against it. If the population exceeds the resources of the land, then what we call criminal behavior arises as a result of scarcity, whether artificial or real. A psychiatrist once said that if he could open a drawer and give each of his patients $200,000, 85% of his clients would have no need to see him anymore. <laughs> Sorry. Today, our efforts to deal with socially offensive behavior are both inadequate and inappropriate. Eventually, it will be realized and understood that most forms of so-called criminal behavior, which will fill jails well into the 21st century, have been generated by the scramble for money and property in an age of often contrived scarcity and planned obsolescence. Four out of five of the prison population in New York come from seven of the lowest income areas in the state. I guess that's supposed to be a coincidence. Bigotry, racism, nationalism, jealousy, superstition, greed, and self-centered behavior are all learned patterns of behavior which are strengthened or reinforced by our upbringing. These patterns of behavior are not inherited human traits or human nature as most people have been taught to believe. If the environment remains unaltered, similar behavior will reoccur. When we come into the world, we arrive with a clean slate as far as our relationships with others are concerned. In the final analysis, any judgment about undesirable human behavior serves no purpose absent an attempt to alter the environment that creates it. In a society that provides for most human needs, constructive behavior would be reinforced and people who have difficulty interacting in the community could be helped rather than imprisoned. Aspiring to a particular ethical behavior has to do with human aspirations and ideals. Functional morality is the ability to provide a process which achieves a sustainable environment for all people. By, the, we, by this we mean providing clean air and water, goods and services, and a healthy and innovative environment that is emotionally and intellectually fulfilling. It is difficult to think of solutions that would serve the interests of the majority in a monetary system. None of this can be accomplished without a comprehensive redesign of our social system and the eventual replacement of the money-based system with a scientifically managed resource-based economy. Natural law. Whether you realize it or not, every human being, whether criminal or saint, is a law-abiding citizen. That is to say, we are all subject to the natural laws that shape our behavior and values, and it is not possible for human life to exist without being subservient to these natural laws. Today, however, people think they are independent of the laws of nature, and they place themselves on a pedestal. They are unaware of their dependence upon natural laws. They build different houses of worship and plead with various versions of the deity to alter the laws of nature on their own behalf. They submit appeals for deliverance from such disasters as hurricanes, floods, or droughts. The world's religious leaders and their followers cannot stop outbreaks of the flu or prevent floods or hurricanes by prayer. As long as superstition and ignorance prevail, humanity will fall short of eradicating war, 
poverty, and hunger. Only when humans accept the fact that they are not separate entities in the vast symbiotic process of nature can we truly say that there is intelligent life on Earth. Some, pe some people believe that certain laws of nature, like, like the sex urge, a completely natural drive, can actually be changed by acts of Congress. <laughs> so laws are enacted against certain kinds of human sexual behavior. These laws are passed despite massive amounts of evidence demonstrating these behavioral drives do not vanish with the enactment of such laws. It is not possible to prevent behavior through legislation if it does not correlate with natural laws and principles. Natural law is inviolable. A human who doesn't perceive or receive proper nutrition will not enjoy physical well-being, will sicken, and will eventually die. There are fixed properties of the physical world which no amount of human legislation can change. Natural laws are well known, yet how many people are forced to violate them because of our social and economic insufficiencies? With every increase in population, the values and behaviors of culture change. When resources become scarce, the management and allocation of them becomes stringent, so laws evolve that correspond to the changed conditions. We must stress again that the values, habits, outlooks, beliefs, and social conduct of a given culture are determined by environmental influences. The Earth is a built-in recycling system, an arrangement that the human race has increased, increasingly violated. Our rivers, oceans, and water tables overflow with debris, chemical spills, and the runoff of daily living. Landfills contain mountains of toxic and non-biodegradable trash that will last for centuries. Replenishing the environment is very difficult in a world of unregulated competition. As fast as we recover a river, another oil platform is built in the sea. Just as technology is engineered for a given task, the management of the environment that supports life also requires an intelligent effort to manage the output and input systems. They must exist in harmony with the nat natural symbiotic process. As nations violate the symbiotic process of nature, we pay for it in the loss of arable land, environmental degradation, pollution of the oceans, territorial disputes, and wars. International agreements and laws are meaningless and counterproductive if they do not conform to the carrying capacity of the environment. As we observe the natural world, we admire the functional design and the aesthetic aspects that are byproducts of function. The ingenious economy of natural evolution has produced shapes, forms, co coloration, and unique configurations that appropriately conform to the environment that nurtured them. The laws that govern the physical world and engineering principles are universal in their application to people. What distinguishes the technical person, the scientist or engineer, from the politician or theologian is that when confronted with technical breakdowns, the former cannot blame the opposite party or the hand of the Almighty. They cannot blame the incompetence of the former administration. If they did, it is unlikely that they would ever be called upon for their services. A chemical engineer cannot avoid his or her responsibility by explaining away corrosion in transfer tubes of chemical elements. He or she is responsible for the selection of the materials used. Scientists have no way of avoiding responsibility for problems encountered. While some people shun accountability and justify mistakes by pointing out that to err is human, most scientists and engineers seek to minimize the probability of error. Prior to building a dam or any new physical structure, for example, they conduct a great many studies in order to evaluate and, uncover, and, and uncover insufficiencies in the planning. If only our politicians did that. Unfortunately, few students learn good analytical skills. The humanities are not held up to the same scrutiny. They present vague and mystical explanations of physical phenomena. Many explanations are accepted without sufficient information or study of the subjects covered. 
Mystical explanations don't work in the practice of engineering or any other branch of the physical sciences. If we do not have sufficient information, our decisions and conclusions will be inappropriate. Few liberal arts courses provide a foundation for the intelligent analysis required for rational thinking. What is notoriously lacking in students' education is exposure to the natural sciences and the laws responsible for natural phenomena. In our redesign of education, we propose that intelligent analysis be a core subject in all school curricula. It has taken many years to realize that the human being is subject to the same laws of nature that govern planets, stars, and living and non-living systems. Setting human behavior apart from these laws is arrogant, erroneous, and dangerous. The development of robots and artificial intelligence is an extension of the human body. Although seeming disconnected from us, the cybernated world is an advanced and objective extension of collective thinking and of how humans relate to one another and the world we inhabit. In fact, all the hand tools of primitive tribes and their language evolved as extensions of human attributes. The same process of extensionality is expressed in our books, architecture, mathematics, and all branches of the physical sciences. This includes living and non-living systems, which are interdependent to the life process that sustains all of us. The realization of this encompassing connectivity between living and non-living systems could enable us to outgrow our shallow self-centeredness as a species. Self-centeredness has dominated the human race for centuries. As long as people and their governments remain ignorant of these basic principles, humanity will suffer the consequences. Today, the management of human social systems is based upon antiquated concepts and primitive superstitions that serve natural, national interests. We cannot achieve real progress towards social maturation, no matter how sincere the intent, without understanding these laws. The survival of the human race depends on the recognition of these unalterable principles. If we fail to use these principles and continue to operate from our anthrop anthropocentric pedestal, we will be doomed to repeat the same errors over and over again. Associative memory. As we explore human behavior and the influence environment has on us, one question always arises, do we really think? This is a circular question that cannot be answered unless we define what we mean by thinking. Thinking is, at its simplest, ta at its simplest talking to oneself. The term thinking evolved as not wholly successful means of describing a mental process that was poorly understood at the time. Thinking is influenced by the process called associative memory. Any judgment we make, value system that we uphold, or preferences that we express are always based upon associative memory. It is essentially reflective of the environment and the experiences we have had. An example of associative memory would be if we see a flower similar to a rose but with a small dark spot in the middle, we would probably smell the flower. After all, our experience is that roses have a pleasant smell. If the odor is instead pungent, the distinguishing black spot would affect our future responses to other flowers of similar configuration. We may not shy away from roses without dark spots, but we will think twice about smelling those we associate with an unpleasant experience. Associative memory identifies objects, places, or people. The same process applies to hearing, touch, smell, feelings, judgments, and opinions. All decision-making systems are based upon associative memory. This is essentially how we formulate decisions of right, wrong, good, and bad, and how we measure aesthetics and beauty. Beauty lies not in the eye, but in the associative memory of the beholder. To an etymologist, the appearance of a spider may be appealing, even beautiful, while others may find it repulsive. 
If we lived in a land where everyone had a nose six inches long, those who did not measure up would no doubt have surgery to add it to it so it is to conform to the accepted norms. When an Eskimo not exposed to modern civilization thinks of transportation, it is most likely that in the form of a team of dogs pulling a sled. If exposed to no other housing styles, the natives of the Amazon jungle think of a home as a thatched hut. No human being can overcome the influences of his or her environment. This includes all of one's experiences. Ample examples of this exist in our own culture. Most of us assume that the brain is a reservoir of limitless untapped information. People speak of bringing our, out the best and noblest qualities in humans, but you can't bring out what isn't there. This notion of the human mind is extremely dangerous and unfounded. If an electrical engineer of 80 years ago had been handed a microchip and asked to speculate on its use, even if he were to dissect it, you would have no basis for interpreting its function. The implications and understanding of associative memory can have a profound effect on the way we look at the world and ourselves. It may even raise questions about how much freedom there is in our so-called individuality and freedom of choice. Human emotions. Many human emotions reflect environmental insufficiency, insecurity, and scarcity. Our emotions and how we express them are too large ex are, are, I'm sorry, are to a large extent determined by our culture. Here we do not refer to emotions due to psychological reactions such as physical pain, loud noises, or bright lights. By emotions we mean patterns of behavior that do not alleviate the problem. A less scientific but more colorful way of describing emotion in this sense is that, the re is that it resembles the racing of a car's engine at a stoplight, generating a lot of energy but taking us nowhere. In fact, many emotions are associated with strategies for achieving self-centered ends such as the promotion of nationalism, salesmanship, seduction, flattery, and other forms of manipulation. They are used to control the actions of others. When a car skids on a wet pavement and crashes, someone may tend to the situation as best he or she can, perhaps holding the injured person's hand until a doctor arrives. We consider such a person to be a caring and concerned individual, rarely seen or appreciated as the engineer who holds... <coughs> Sorry about that. <coughs> rarely seen or appreciated is the engineer who adds an anti-skid surface to the pavement, thus eliminating the cause of the accident in the first place. This variety of caring illustrates an emotion translated into a workable solution to eliminate the problem. A caring society of the future will, re will remove the conditions responsible for greed, envy, hate, revenge, and other undesirable human emotions. We will use technology to make certain emotions irrelevant by getting rid of the problems that cause them. In a resource-based economy, when people no longer live in fear of losing their jobs or being insecure in old age, and when they have access to things that were not available to them in a monetary system, then love will not be a merely, merely a word, but a way of life. When, when humans live to learn, in, uh, learn to live in harmony with nature and with one another, then spirituality will be a way of life rather than just empty talk. In a more sophisticated and humane society, emotions would be harnessed and expressed in appropriate behaviors or action patterns. When emotions are translated into positive, constructive action patterns, when they transcend the limitations of the present culture of war, poverty, and hunger that cause so many of these emotions, then they will indeed become useful. When they are harnessed so as to transcend the limitations of the present and become expressions of deed rather than simply habitual thinking or um, habitual unthinking reactions to stimuli, they will serve human beings far better. Perhaps someday in the future, when there is peace on earth and abundance of resources available to everyone, 
Many of the emotions that have bewildered us for centuries will abate. Anger, despair, vengefulness, envy, and depression will perhaps even disappear due to the beneficial effects of our redesigned culture and environment. Well, that was the end of that chapter. Um, before I open to the panelists, I wanted to uh, point out something that I think is kind of important here for people to understand, is that it's not a situation of control of people. It's a situation of essentially control of the environment, which in turn reflects on how the people will then in turn behave. It's not a system of creating laws, you know, or going around and forcing people to behave a certain way. It's of controlling the environment in such a way so as to get a certain result. And the result that you want is peace and harmony, and it's not really that hard to achieve. One of the things I want to bring up, actually, that was brought up by one of the guys I talked to from Technocracy that made a lot of sense, was that he, I guess this guy named Pavlov did an um, experiment on chickens. He had a group of chickens. Um, he gave this one group of chickens all of the feed they could ever need. He gave the other group of chickens very little. Well, as you can probably imagine, the chickens that had all the feed they needed behaved much better, got along just fine, and interacted with each other just fine. The chickens that didn't have that much feed, well, he actually managed to get them to kill one another, fighting over feed. Now, this is an example of what we mean by controlling the environment to affect the emotions and affect the reactions and therefore the way that the society conducts itself. You give everybody all the feed they need, so to speak, then they're going to behave accordingly. If you give them scarcity, they're not. <laughs> That's essentially the point that a lot of people just fail to grasp. We're not running around trying to brainwash human beings either. It's more of a matter of you can't expect good behavior out of people in a bad situation. So uh, what did you have to add about this chapter, Jackie? Um, well, you know, the thing about um, the last chapter, I think it was chapter 12, you know, some of my favorite chapters why I'm here. It gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, this particular chapter is actually where most of my personal interests lie, and that's um, pretty much why people treat each other the way they do and uh, human behavior in general, why we, you know, believe the certain things that we believe and, and how that came about. Um, something I've been fascinated with my whole life, so it's really hard to find a place to start. But just to go back to what you were commenting, commenting on, um, I don't know, this is kind of an old movie. It's called The Gods Must Be Crazy. And in this movie, it, talked, it was basically about a Kalahari Bushman who um, went and you know, maybe met people for the outside trying to get rid of this bottle that had totally disrupted his world because now they had this one scarce resource that everyone was fighting over. But, you know, before then, they were living in perfect harmony even though they live in the middle of the desert. Um, and that's one of the things, um, you know, when you read, uh, you know, William Shakespeare, thing, something that was written hundreds of years ago, and you see that human behavior in a monetary system hasn't really changed a whole lot. But when you compare human behavior of people in the monetary system to that of a tribal society that is basically RBE, um, it's resource-based, like the Kalahari Bushmen, like the people in the South Pacific that, um, lived with and met, um, you see a, a major radical uh, difference in the way human beings interact with one another. Um, the thing I wanted to go into is about uh, psychology in itself. Um, you know, it's very clear that um, Jock is a behaviorist, 
and uh, just behaviorism is a, is a fairly recent study. It's, it's probably just around 100 years old, maybe a little less, a little bit more. Um, and unfortunately, we've learned so much about human conditioning um, and how to influence human behavior through these experiments and studies by, you know, behaviorists throughout the, the past few years, really. Um, and it's really only been utilized. It's not really utilized in um, education or mental health. It's utilized in the advertising and marketing industries. And basically what we use, all this knowledge that we, scientific knowledge that we've gained about human psychology is for making us better consumers. You know, and what's really sad is when you look at, you compare that to how it's used in the mental, or what, what type of psychology is used in the mental health industry today. And that's basically a, a, a something called biopsychology. So when you have a neurosis and you go to a psychiatrist for treatment, he treats you chemically, not behaviorally. Right. Not by changing your environment, by changing the chemical, the chemistry of your brain through drugs. Um, and I think that's, you know, a real big problem. We need to take the harness, the knowledge, the scientific knowledge that we have learned through behavioral study and start applying it to neurosis and to um, education, especially, and, and not to consumerism. Um, you know, that's actually an interesting point. I, I watched a documentary not long ago about how much drugs we're using now in comparison to what we used to use in our psychiatry and how we're medicating our kids especially. And we're starting to get to the point where any emotional problem is something that they're going to try to cure with a drug. Now, I don't necessarily feel that, you know, drugs could not be used to help people who have, like, certain chemical imbalances that create certain emotional problems. However, when you add the profit motive to this, then you end up with more bad science applications, you know, because they want to sell good drugs. They want to sell drugs that are profitable. You end up with these kids that are on, like, eight different drugs, you know, like really young kids who are on a lot of drugs. Um, and then those drugs have side effects, and then you take other drugs to cure the side effects of the drugs that, you know, that and in turn have more side effects. I mean, it's scary. Um, I believe the, the documentary is called The Medicated Child, but... Um, and I can actually try to play that on BTV's, BTV at some point. But um, but the point, though, being is just that, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and the environment definitely helps a lot um, to determine these things. Actually, a friend of mine, uh, I guess it was um, actually my mother went to this doctor at one point, uh, that, you know, that you'd come in and you'd describe your, your situation, like, you know, how were you feeling, you know, what was going on, and the, the doctor would listen to you and nod and all that, and then he would ask you what was going on at home. He would ask you what was going on at work. He would ask you what the situation was, and then he would, you know, use that in assistance of with the symptoms of trying to come to a diagnosis. My mom said that this doctor ended up being far better at treating her than anybody else, and it was largely because he was looking into the situation, the environment that was creating the illnesses. Now, um, keeping all that in mind, um, I'm going to ask Ish, did you have any comments about this chapter? Well, I mean, you're kind of preaching to the choir because uh, everything that you said is, is obviously something that I believe in, um, but uh, it's extremely re relevant. I, actually, when you speak to people um, about the Venus Project tenants, this is a topic that is brought up almost every single time. 
and it's it's the concern that once we once we get to a resource based economy, well, what are we going to do with with human behavior? As if as if human behavior is is gonna is is just gonna naturally be aberrant um, when there aren't a cause, or when there isn't a cause of of that aberrant behavior. Um, it's it's crazy. The 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 upside down methodology that that we that we have subjected ourselves to uh, is just it's, it's insane. The the fact that we recognize we recognize symptoms, but we never recognize the cause. It's 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 it's, it's, it's insanity. And the 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 whole the whole thing about laws laws that are put into place they don't fix anything. They just perpetuate uh, like you mentioned while you're reading a, a, a an attitude of subservience. Laws don't fix anything. They never fix anything. I mean, uh, look at in New York City. Um, there was there was a, a heightened a heightened rate of of bus drivers and uh, and train operators being assaulted. And um, I have a few friends that work for the MTA, and a lot of them told me uh, personally that that they feel that it's because of um, a lot of overtime that they've been working and and. And the company's been been uh been putting the crunch on their employees, so to speak. So a lot of the train operators aren't aren't as kind, and the bus drivers aren't as kind. But what did they do? And instead of instead of fixing the system that created that, they created a law. And now there's a law in New York City: if a if a bus driver and a train operator is assaulted, it's a federal crime. And but you still have bus drivers and train operators that that curse at at people and that are rude to people. It didn't change anything. It just it just created uh, more of a sense of subservience and um, and yeah that's basically my thoughts. Well, I imagine now whenever those uh, train operator and people finally decide that they're angry enough to deal with this train operator or bus driver, you know, at that point they're uh, you know they if they finally do break you know past that the the kinds of violence that's going to come out of it is going to be worse. It's not going to be better, <laughs> you know. Because after you've made somebody angry enough at you that you're willing to you know violate a federal law to get to you, they're they're probably going to make sure that they get their money's worth out of your butt. <laughs> that's why just it's it, we talk about that in the libertarian movement a lot too is the unnecessary laws um, that in many cases don't really improve anything and you know we once again we we talk a bit about the environment and how it affects things you know and how people just don't want to really accept that they don't want to think about that you know like you said the different things you were describing remind me a lot of the fact that um, people don't really look into the causes of any of this behavior um, that's not the first thing that comes through to them. The first thing that comes through to them is to call the police to enforce the invisible laws. Um, you know that that's going to solve everything, um, rather than changing the environment accordingly. I mean, it's like there's probably going to be some apparent behavior for a little while. Just like I'm sure, if we took some of Pavlov's chickens, you know, make just maybe even just one of them out of the chicken coop where there wasn't enough feed, and put it in the chicken coop where there was plenty of feed, for a little while. That chicken would probably be still, you know, very defensive of the feed and would be trying to, you know, chase off other chickens. But after a time of, you know, eventually that chicken's going to realize, hey, there's plenty of feed here. Why would I do that? You know, and that's exactly what essentially will happen. People always say, you know, how are we going to do with this transition? Is I honestly feel that the vast majority of human beings are going to change their behavior after their environment changes because people don't just behave just because in any certain way. 
they behave according to what is necessary for them to survive. This also has to do with uh, social interactions and taboos. You know, if you were raised in certain parts of the South, you're more likely to be racist. And there's a reason for that. It's not because people in the South are genetically predisposed to racism. It's because of the fact that that is part of the culture of the South. And then if you want to get ahead and be accepted in that culture, you better know your racial slurs and you should probably show up to the local Klan meeting. You know, that, that's the, the, this is the part that the, the people who claim that human nature is everything, and, you know, they, they, they always fall flat on their face with this. They never want to comment on this. You know, and it's largely, it's, it's the biggest cop-out of our times, that intellectual people would essentially blame all bad behavior on this concept of human nature, this mythical notion that people are just bad by nature and that's just the way it is. The funny thing is, we don't really argue that that is, you know, that that is what you're going to expect from people. That's not, that's not the issue. What we argue with is the approach of how to deal with it. And that is the fact that, yes, we agree with them entirely, that in the circumstances of scarcity, people are going to be violent. People are going to do whatever it takes to survive. You know, and if they are forced to live in you know, situations where they're basically enslaved to somebody else to survive, that's going to create neuroses. This is actually like I was talking about this in another show, was that the cause of abuse I saw in my home because my stepfather went from being a very nice man to being a very abusive man to my mother. And, you know, some of that was definitely the way he was raised, and a certain amount of it was also the alcohol. But I also recognized that the circumstances in our lives were different. We lived, and we were very poor, living in parts of Florida when they were building Disney World, trying to get, you know, he was trying, we thought we would go down there and there would be jobs down there, and we found out that there really were not. You know, you go out on a construction site, you're hot, you're uncomfortable all day, you're being told what to do, you know, by somebody who's probably being a jerk to you because he's also hot and uncomfortable. You get home at the end of the day, and, well, at that point, particularly if you've had some alcohol in your system, you're certainly sick of people pushing you around, so the response to that is to push other people around and therein creates the abuse. This is the neuroses that we were talking about, that you don't see directly from scarcity. It doesn't, you know, people don't just go to the store, realize they can't afford a you know, jug of milk, and then use that as an ex you know, ex excuse to go beat somebody up. They might use the, um, essentially the, the frustration that comes from the, you know, the people, you know, when, once they figure out that they can't get what they want, then makes them want to go and in turn feel powerful over somebody else. This is what creates this. These are the crimes that people claim are not in any way linked to scarcity. This is, as Peter Joseph pointed out, through neuroses created by the stress of the situation, these aberrant behaviors are created. Now, we've got 42 minutes left in the show. I was going to open the floor to callers. If anybody wants to call in, the guest call-in number is 347-945-945. 7747. That's 347-945-7747. It is if you want to call in and discuss this subject or any other subjects in regards to the Venus Project. While I was doing my uh, Zeitgeist TV, we had a lot of questions that would come through, and I couldn't keep up with everything because the chat was just scrolling. We had like 70 users at one point, and that makes it really hard to keep up. So if you have any questions about the Venus Project, you know, please don't hesitate to call. 
I will probably type that out in the chat room, although I believe the guest caller number is listed right there. Um, let me see here. I'm going to type this out. Now, Jackie, did you have anything further to say on the discussion so far? Um, yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to do is um, highly recommend a book. Uh, it's called Influence, and it's by a uh, professor of psychology named Robert Caldini. And, uh, you can find it on Amazon easily enough. Um, it's in paperback, and it's not a very expensive book. But Influence has taught me, gave, or should say, has given me a tremendous amount of insight into how not only people around me, but how you know I'm being, in, you know, basically manipulated um, through the marketing and advertising industry. And actually, um, what I really particularly love about that book is he gives you little strategies at the end of each chapter to avoid being manipulated. And I find that I found this book extremely helpful, extremely insightful because it, it's from a very scientific perspective. Um, and he goes into the experiments and things that have been done um, to, to show, you know, these different behaviors and how they work and how certain things like the rule of reciprocity, reactants, um, you know, there's several other conditions he goes through, um, really help to influence and how people take advantage of that to profit from us. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is just uh, you know, a personal case in point about uh, our cookie-cutter education system. And, um, you know, my daughter was in the garden, and she's, you know, hyperactive like a lot of five-year-old children. And, you know, what the school wants to do, you know, is have my, me put my daughter on amphetamines, on, on drugs, basically, uh, to make her, you know, a good, attentive student that's not getting out of her seat in kindergarten. Mhm. Mm <laughs> you know, of course, right. you know, I didn't take their advice. Um, you know, I did take her to see a doctor, and honestly, couldn't stand him. So <laughs> that, <laughs> that pretty much ended that there. But the thing, when I think about it, and I think about you know these kids that have this hyperactivity, is really what you need to do with the education system. First of all, you can't teach every child the same. I mean, we have this cookie-cutter system where every child is expected to learn the same way, and it's already been proven, well proven, that human beings learn differently. Some people learn visually, some people learn through hearing, and some people learn tactically. You know, there's three basic types of learning, and, you know, rather than, you know, determine what student, how what student learns, and put them in classes that are catered to that and develop them that way, no, they mix them all together and all expect them to learn one way. Um, also, with the energy thing, you know, dance, something no school has. No public school has dance. You put your little five-year-old kids in a dance class for an hour, followed up with some, you know, athletic sport, but, you know, after lunch and afternoon, that energy is spent. Now they can sit and concentrate on academic things. But, you know, rather and try to adjust the education system to fit the student and how well they learn, they just decide to push off drugs to alter them chemically. And it's disgusting. All I've got to say, but I wanted to comment about that because it's something that so many people, so many parents of young children, you have a young child, if, you know, that we know, you know, you're going to face these things and they're not fun. I mean, it's like at the point 
So I just want to pull her out of school and teach her at home because she's not really going to learn anything there. Yeah, you know, I actually have a very similar sentiments about that myself. I've been very uh, concerned about that because I certainly know how much environment affects real behavior, but especially in very young children. Um, I have two children. For a while, um, I was letting my girlfriend's uh, parents watch them. And for just two days out of a month, their behavior would change drastically. I mean, just drastically, just from a couple of days of being in a different situation. Um, and, you know, they would come home, and I'd get these reports of all this violence and, you know, that my children had never exhibited before. And they were like, you know, you may need to get Morgan into counseling. You know, she was so violent all this time. And I was just like, I just kind of looked at them and I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, because my children had never done anything like that. And so I spent the day over at that house while my kids were there. And then I finally got to the conclusion, which was the fact that Avery, the young girl who would stay over there, was essentially the, one of their uh, grandchildren, was a monster. You know, <laughs> funny thing is, my, my, my daughter hears me talking about it, and she's trying to participate in the conversation. But um, I remember one time while I was there, <clears throat> at one point, my daughter was being very good, sitting and watching Tinkerbell on the television. It was a recent Tinkerbell CGI cartoon. And um, um, as I was getting at, uh, but anyway, so she's sitting there watching the TV, and Morgan doesn't have any of Avery's toys, does not have any of Avery's belongings, is not sitting in Avery's seat, is not doing anything to Avery, but Avery just takes the mind to walk over, take two handfuls of my daughter's hair, and yank her off the couch. Um, needless to say, I didn't really react to that very well, but I was, you're in that awkward position of where it's not your kid and they did something wrong, so you're like, you're waiting for, you know, the parent's going to do something, right? You know, and... Lo and behold, they didn't, and it finally came down to me having to do the shouting in order to get anything to happen. Now, the reason I bring this up is that, you know, I look around myself a lot, and the, a lot of the children being raised in this generation are really messed up kids. And it's, you know, your, your kids end up being like clay to them, and it, it basically um, really brings up, you know, where people don't recognize how much their environment affects their behavior you know, and in children, it's like, you know, uh, uh, like clay. You know, they're so malleable. Now, Ish, did you have anything further to say about this before we go on? Uh, no, no, not really. Okay, well, that's all right. It looks like we have a caller. Um, I'm going to bring, it says, Peace Love 420 onto the air. <laughs> Hello? Hello? Hi. Hello? Yeah, you're here. You might want to mute the show, though. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm not really... I'm kind of new to this. Um, sorry if it's feedbacking. I just wanted to say this is a uh, very great show that you've been doing. I appreciate hearing uh, Jack Fresco's book. Um, and I appreciate your posts on the forum as well. I think uh, one thing that contributes to this clay molding uh, we're seeing is... Uh, a Showing of curiosity, particularly in children, kids will be, you know, at a very young age, asking their parents, you know, what's that? What's that? And I hear so much. I don't have so many questions. Or, you know, shut up. You know, I'm busy right now, right? So, right. Uh, that alone is. Right. But I mean, 
at least now we live in an age where there is so much more access to information. And, I mean, it's very easy for people to find whatever they're searching for. So it's a matter of getting that curiosity back into the people where it's killed. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, thank you once again for your appreciation for the show. You know, uh, make sure that you spread the awareness so that more people will hear about it. And I hope that you also will tune into my TV show that I do on the Internet for playing documentaries to help people learn about the principles behind the Venus Project. Um, have you? Did you check any of that out? I have seen that. Um, I haven't been able to catch the TV at a time when it's broadcasting, but uh, I do appreciate that. It's very resourceful. And uh, as far as spreading awareness, anyone who wants to check out my music will certainly find messages that reflect the zeitgeist movement, and uh, that can be found just by Googling Steve Hansen in transit. So. All right. Well, thanks a lot, caller. Um, and uh, thanks for listening. I hope you'll uh, tune in later. All right. Well, that was Peace Love 420. Um, if anybody else would like to call in, uh, the phone lines are still open. Um, and now the bearing in essentially what the caller just brought up, uh, did you have anything further to add at this point, Jackie? Uh, no, not particularly. Um, yeah, I think you have a great show too today, Ravie. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jackie. What about you, Ish? No, uh, um, I, I think what he said was just pretty much an, an appreciation of the show. Um, and he did mention uh, one thing that I could I could certainly relate to in terms of uh, raising children. I know with with my daughter, um, oftentimes I I, I approach her uh, problematic behavior um, in, a, in a way that I, I was brought up instead of, instead of really acknowledging exactly what's going on. So it kind of relates to uh, the, the memory mechanism, how you immediately use what, what your memory will allow you to use instead of utilizing the ability of critical thought and um, the more I, I try to apply critical thinking to my relationship with my daughter, the more I find her developing. And you know what it usually come boils down to is her is her environment. Like, like you were mentioning, it almost all the time boils down to that. And a lot of times it 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 turns it turns around at me. You know, like uh, you know if 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 I want to address a certain issue with her, then most likely it's something that I need to address with myself or, uh, and also um, with, with the environment. And I think that's, that, that's something that a lot of parents, at least, at least from my, my upbringing, my experience uh, being brought up in a, in a very, very strict home um, where it was, it was like a totalitarian rule. It was a dictatorship. It, 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 there was no if ands or buts. It was just do, do as I say or 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 get get a really raw spanking you know that's that was the bottom line there was there was nothing really being taught there except except uh this uh this this uh concept of subservience and uh, the more the more we acknowledge the effect that the environment plays and we as parents are part of that environment on our children 
then uh, the more we're going to be able to to uh, uh, facilitate our child's our, our child's productivity. Now, a uh, question here from Christopher Knapp from the chat room uh, essentially is, how do you deal with or explain this to others? He basically, let me see if I can read this off. Um, one of the things that I get hit pretty hard with is, okay, Chris, your idea sounds good on paper, but it will never happen once there are too many, uh, once, uh, never happen because there are too many people like me. And then they, and Chris goes on to say, I see what he or she means, meaning that they do not want to change. They like their stuff and having their own stuff. Another person says, I have heard the same thing. People like me would abuse that system. Uh, Christopher goes on to say, even if I can explain to them why they feel that way, why they're so concerned about their stuff, that it still wouldn't matter. I get really frustrated about this because this blows my mind and all comes down to greed and selfishness. And yes, my kid is pretty cute sometimes. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> we kind of covered this a little bit a minute ago, but it has to do with the fact that this behavior is only going to go on um, so long uh, after the uh, system it changes. Will there still be people who are attempting to be selfish? Yes. Um, but the, the excuse I usually, or excuse, the example I usually give is, like, imagine that somebody has determined that he wants to be a tyrant, and he would like to breathe all of the air in the, on the planet. So he's just going to sit there and suck his lungs full of air until he asphyxiates and falls over. Um, <laughs> that's kind of the solution, is that we want everything to be as common as air, that, that is the, the final ultimate goal. Sure, you can have your stuff if you really want to have your stuff. The point is, is that eventually, they, you know, people will eventually get over these notions that are essentially brought on by scarcity. Property is pretty much entirely an instinct brought on by scarcity. You feel the need to have personal property because you're afraid you're not going to have it if you don't. You know, it, and in that world that people are coming from, initially that's going to be an alien concept to them. And it will take some adjustment. You know, but uh, up until then, I don't really think that these people are going to be that much of a problem. I don't think that they're going to be all that disruptive. You know, they want all of their, you know, their stuff, so fine. Go have your stuff. Um, big deal. Um, and uh, you know, so you, you let them have their stuff, and then eventually they start to realize, wow, you know, I guess that's not that important. You know, I, I guess, let me put it to you this way. You say you have a guy who really wants a pair, you know, his, his golf clubs, the, the thing that was brought up previously. So you, you give him golf clubs, and he has access to golf clubs anywhere he goes. They're the best possible golf clubs that can be built according to science. They're made to last. They're all high quality. Every single, you know, golf club on the planet is equal in, the, in, its, in its superiority. And it's you know, basically the best possible. How long is it really going to, you know, I mean, you may get some kind of sentimental value, but that's also kind of a product of, you know, irrational thinking. But for the most part, how long do you think people are really going to bother to lug their golf clubs around when there's plenty of golf clubs everywhere? You know, if, yeah, they may initially, but eventually those hoarding instincts go away, just like the chicken who eventually decides it doesn't need to kill other chickens. We're now down to the uh, last 30 seconds or so of the show. Um, I want to thank both of my panelists for coming on. Thank you, Ish. Thank you, Jackie. Oh, thank you, Neil, for having us. It was wonderful. Thank you. Um, and once again, thank you, Ish, for being on. And thank you to all of my listeners and those who support me. Um, once again, you can donate to V Radio and keeping me on the air uh, by going to my MySpace. And there's a chip-in widget on the right. 
My PayPal is associated with that. It will go directly to me, and I use it to pay the Internet and um, Skype bills, and that's it. I don't even really need a lot, and in fact, don't send a lot. If you see that there's like uh, $100, in, you know, like $100 or so in there, then don't, don't give any more. I don't need anything more than that to keep those things going. So thanks a lot, and um, I will talk to all of you later. Uh, this has been another great edition of V-Radio.